0: All right, so let's get started. So, um, just to start, any questions about anything so far? Was that response three? Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, this should be week four. Okay. So if you haven't done any responses yet, you can not do a response this week as well if you'd like um but then after this you would have to do a response for every week we have of class so if you haven't done a response yet that is okay um but it's it's going to soon not be okay so you know start to get those in it's going to be a lot more difficult too when assignments are due so yes all right any other questions Okay Good, so let's jump in. Let's start with where we weren't able to get to next last time, which was Peter Brook's The Empty Space, starting with chapter two. Um, and so the the main concern Brook has here is um, is this idea of kind of ritual and ceremony being restored into theater. And so he has this is this book has a number of chapters, as you can see, I believe I have the whole book posted. Um, you have theater that's deadly, holy, rough, immediate. Um, we we didn't do deadly theater because deadly theater is sort of like bad Shakespeare, I guess, would be a way of, of thinking about it. It's 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 theater that's like very proper and quote unquote correct. It does. It, it's um, it's very self-serious. Uh and he just sees this as deadly. Deadly is not a compliment. It's um, it's theater that's kind of devoid of life. And he wants to find ways of injecting life or vitality back into theater. Now this is very much like late 60s, early 70s kind of lingo. So this idea of like life, spirit, happenings, all all them, they they are very much located in a particular time and place and in a particular idiom too. Um, Brooke is is of his error. However, we should consider what he has to say, because even though he he's speaking from a particular time, he has managed to stage these plays for forty years. I think he's still staging plays fifty years, and also he is continuing the the sort of conversations and scholarship that are toe started uh, decades before him. So e- even though we might say this is like a real 60s thing or a real hippie thing, um, there is a line of continuation that goes back 60 years and a line of continuation that comes forward 60 years. So even if we might roll our eyes at like how how excited he is about happenings and, and the term happening, um, there is something vital and something very important about this work, and also about Peter Brook's work, his stage work, the stuff he's staged. That has become incredibly important even today. Um, his play Mara Saad, uh, which there's a video of, you could you could go see it, they made a video version of it, um, is you know, one of the most important, maybe not one of the most important texts as in the, the words of the play, uh, but one of the most important productions of the the latter part of the 20th century for that reason just because it's it's so innovative um but let's do mm, five to ten minutes on brooke and start with talking about his um his ideas about ritual right so i'm gonna go jump to uh page 45 so He says, this is at the very bottom of page 45, the paragraph break and an incomplete paragraph. We have lost all sense of ritual and ceremony, whether it be connected with Christmas, birthdays or funerals, but the words remain with us and old impulses stir in the marrow. We feel we should have rituals. We should do something about getting them and we blame the artists for not finding them for us, so the artist sometimes attempts to find new rituals with only his imagination as his source. He mediates, he mediates the outer form of ceremonies, pagan or baroque. Excuse me, he imitates the outer form of ceremonies, pagan or baroque. Unfortunately, adding his own trappings, the result is rarely convincing. And after the years and years of weaker and waterier imitations, we now find ourselves rejecting the very notion of a holy stage. It is not the fault of the holy that it has become a middle class weapon to keep children good. So, let's let's jump at that a little bit. What do you think he means by that? Yes, yeah, it's page 45 into page 46 I'll give people a chance to maybe open the file It's The Empty Space by Peter Brook Okay um, I found it on page fifty. Is no, maybe, maybe your file's a little different I, I thought I had given you the Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well then, thank you, Christina. Uh let's go to 54. And so we're we're talking here about this idea of the importance of ritual and the fact that it's it's missing from the world, right? And that we blame artists for not finding them for us, these rituals. Um, and so, so the, the idea then is what does he mean by ritual? How about that? Let's, let's a simpler question. What do you think he means by ritual? Well, he, he is talking about holidays. He's talking about something that is abstractable that could be taken out of holidays, right? And, you know, we could. this is kind of a good pairing for, you know, I put this, I signed this the week we were doing Everyman. Um, you know, it, we, we didn't get to it because we, we just got very busy that week. Um, but uh, we could think of Everyman as also being something... Abstracted from ritual, right? When we look at the, the history of every man, or the history of theater of the Middle Ages, they are initiating or, or beginning in ritual, right? That they're part of the initially the Easter Mass, Easter Mass, and then they come out of the Easter Mass into the church, and they come out of the church into the town square, um, and so these things are coming from ritual. Morality plays. Are initially their source, their genealogy is in kind of ritual and holy space, and so what do you think? And this is this is more a subjective question, your your guys' opinion. But what do you think, Brooke? Then is looking for in looking to restore the ritual, looking to restore the kind of the sense of church. Um, and it doesn't have to be Catholic church; it could be any church. You know, he's also interested in, in Hinduism and things like that in his work. But what do you think of what do you think it would mean to restore the holy to the ritual of theater? Okay. Good. I, I, I think that that's a nice comment. So you had two parts to that comment there, Jude, which is the the idea of signifying magic and also this thread that connects aspects of theatre together. And I think both of them are you know kind of kind of what what Brooke is going for um by kind of signifying magic you know take that as um as giving a giving a sense of meaning or depth to things we see on stage right and and in so doing they, they kind of transport us or whatnot um but also this idea of a unifying thread that theater is um, purposed or has a purpose that is more than just entertainment. Um, what he, he refers to, excuse me, what he refers to as kind of this bourgeois values, which you know, this is like some guy from the sixties, right? Cause he, he uses the term bourgeois uh, dismissively, but something kind of more than the, you know more than the the ticket sale or something like that, more than entertainment value that it has this kind of ritualistic or elevated value that it's doing something um it's doing something more than just carrying you through a story. so if Mackenzie's coming here so instead of saying he's saying instead of them having continued true religious practices okay good and and what way would it be restored in which he thinks it's valid? What would be a valid restoration Mackenzie okay, okay, I see what you're saying that there there had to be that the ritual is the rituals towards a purpose I think that that's what you're saying mackenzie, and the the fact that um The fact that you can do ritual without purpose, so you can go through the motions of a ritual or you can ritualize something, sends in, you know, sends a a holy day or something like that makes it difficult for the artist to restore ritual. Is that am I kind of following what you're saying? (laughs) <laughs> that, that's okay. Maybe <laughs> cite on your papers correctly. We'll cite roughly in conversation. Um, anyway, Trisha, what what was it uh, you were gonna say? I think it's I think his problem with the artist is that um, that he's imitating the outer form and I think Mackenzie you're getting at you know you Mackenzie's definitely getting at this or what Mackenzie's saying is is just straight on right um, is that he as it says here he imitates the outer form of ceremonies the the artist makes it ceremonial um, and the the problem is that you're now just imitating ceremony and so there's nothing um, there's nothing there that we there's nothing true or, about the reason for the ceremony right so what we've done is or what Brooke is saying theater people have done is take go back to Artaud they look at Arto, they see Artaud has this kind of kind of dangerous, kind of ritualistic type thing, right? There's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of kind of um, uh, uh, specific movement, right? It's not naturalistic movement. It's more ritualized. Um, however, people keep imitating Artau and imitating Arto and imitating Arto, And the point of what Artau was doing is lost. All we have is ritualized movement, you know, ritualized yelling or sound um, and the the kind of rebellion that arto embodied in his work has now become kind of mainstream right it's this idea of the experiment that over time becomes mainstream because it's just imitated over and over again and the reason why it was so uh, why it was such a severance from the past is lost uh, and for Brooke, the context here is, or the, the metaphor, rather, here is holy. That something's holy, it's initiating you into a divorce from the rest of the world. There's the holy, there's the, the sacred and the secular. And when you're in the sacred, you're not in the secular. And when you're in the secular, you're not in the sacred, right? There's this, this sense of bifurcation between the two spaces. And he wants a theater that gets us back to... This kind of sense of of the holy, um, and he doesn't mean specifically a, a, a one religion or another, right? He's not saying you know we all need to become good Anglicans or, or something like that. Uh, what he's saying is that there needs to be this sense of rarefication of of the theater experience, right? And so his great enemy here is uh, the consumable theater. Right. This is what he this is what he's talking about in the, in this chapter is like, you know, the, the bourgeois theater. And I, I I'm sure I rolled my eyes as much as you guys did. I think that's kind of stupid. Um, <laughs> however, I it's important to kind of see his point in order to understand his work. Um, and I think his point is that. If it's something to just be entertained by and then move on from it, you really haven't created the sense of the sacred that someone like created, right? Uh, you created. Know, for Artaud, it's also a dangerous sacred. It's, it's unbalanced. It's aggressive. It goes at you. Um, it doesn't really tolerate you. Uh, Brooke is saying that that has been kind of watered down and now has just become something you consume. Does that kind of make sense? And so for him, the the theater of the absurd, you know, that we, we see from people like Artaud, has worn thin, right? It's become, it's kind of run out of the energy that it would need. And so that's that's kind of the the advancement from Arto to Brooke and we're going to be, be looking at Brooke and seeing what kind of things he's looking to do to kind of restore the holy. And so you know this this book probably or this rather this chapter probably elicits more questions than answers and we're going to go into it a little more as we go along um However, one thing I want to, I want to direct attention to two different things in this chapter before we go, because we do have to, we do have to hang out with Shakespeare for a little while today anyway. Um, And that's what's, for me, page 51, (laughs) Um, it is a few pages before the end of the chapter, and it's the portion where he's talking about gesture. And I'll I'll read out from it, because I thought we had the same pagination, we don't, so I'll, I'll just read out. And then, secondly, I want to uh, look at a short video of something Brooke directed, right? It's a, a short clip from *A Midsummer Night's Dream to see the, you know, the kind of odd angle he takes on theater. And it's perfectly fine to hate what he's directed or, or want to laugh at it. Um, but let's at least try to understand it. So first thing first, with gesture. Uh, Page, for me, 51. This is what some theaters call magic, others science, but it's the same thing. An invisible idea was rightly shown. I say shown because an actor making a gesture is both creating for himself out of his deepest need and yet for the other person. It is hard to understand the true notion of spectator, there and not there, ignored and yet needed. The actor's work is never for an audience, it always is for one. The onlooker is a partner who must be forgotten and still constantly kept in mind. A gesture is statement, expression, communication, and the private manifestation of loneliness. It is always what our calls a signal through the flames. Yet this implies a sharing of experience once contact is made. Slowly we worked towards different wordless languages. We took an event, a fragment of experience, and made exercises that turned them into forms that could be shared. This is his theatre he's talking about, his his theatre truth. We encourage the actors to see themselves not only as improvisers, lending themselves blindly to their inner impulses, but as artists responsible for searching and selecting amongst form, so that a gesture or a cry becomes like an object that he discovers and even remodels. We experimented with and came to reject the traditional language of masks and makeup as no longer appropriate. We experimented with silence. We set out to discover the relations between silence and duration. We needed an audience so that we could set a silent actor in front of them and see the varying lengths of attention you could command. Then we experimented with ritual in the sense of repetitive patterns, seeing how it is possible to present more meaning more swiftly than by a logical unfolding of events. Our aim for each experiment, good or bad, successful or disastrous, was the same. Can the invisible be made visible through the performer's presence?" Okay. And so that's, that seems to be... Um, that's his working method, his practical working method, is looking at gesture, looking at silence, looking at the unspoken aspects of theater and filling them up with things uh this is a, kind of a little different from Arto, right arttoe who's about um not just about repetition but sound um you know uh uh smashing the audience with with this kind of cruelty here the the ritual is um it's a little different uh and see how we could command the audience right how we could kind of indoctrinate the the audience into the ritual he's putting forward. And once you start experimenting with sound and different ways of uh, employing noise, that can be brought into traditional text. And so that's what I want to look at right now. Um, and again, I, I can't emphasize this enough. Feel free to find this very silly. Uh, but think of it as, think about it uh, for the, the creative aspects it offers. So I'm trying to present it. Which is... One second. All right. Okay, I, I should be back now. Okay. Good. Um, so, yeah. So there's an example of of one of his works. And and take a look at a few of them. If you could find Mara Saad, um you know, anything about that. I think that's sixty six, nineteen sixty six. 1966. So, you know, you could see he's making here a strong choice that's based on a reading of the play but also rejection of kind of other readings of the play, right? This, this idea of a a white box, which is a a very strong directorial choice. You could also see the, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the kind of magical creatures on stilts. That's another kind of a, a strong choice involved in this kind of pairing things down. Um, and so, We don't have to come to any answers here, but think about what you were reading in the empty space and some of the decisions Brooke made in terms of even that short clip you saw of his staging of Midsummer. All right. And with that, let's get into the next thing we have to do, which is, as you like it, I'll do a quick kind of breakdown going from 1500 to 1600 in England. Um, and that'll be that then we'll talk about um, what I want to do is talk about the first two acts especially so give me one second to get this thing up and running Okay, so let's get into this. Uh, The the big thing to remember when dealing with the English Renaissance is that it is a later Renaissance. Uh, Scholars call this period the early modern period. There's some debate as to, you know, did the Middle Ages have Renaissance? And clearly in the the late 8th century there was a Renaissance, but you know, whatever. Um, What's important for this is that we saw in Italy um, a 14th century flowering of especially textual art, textile art. So architecture, painting, sculpture. Um, you know, you see the the kind of modern, real modern, and mon- by modern I mean um, non-medieval art of people like Giotto, as early as 1300, um, as well as the architecture of him in uh, of him in the the first half of the the 14th century. Um, what ends up happening is Italy is not a single country. It won't be a single country until the 1860s. So, in the 14th century, it's a collection of city states, and banking becomes a big, big trade in Italy at this time. And um, those those bankers, their descendants, uh, the De Medici are. are a famous one, Piccolomini, is another one. Um, the Sforza family, I, I believe, they were bankers as well. Their descendants tend to be great, um, uh, uh, great patrons of the arts. You know, they're not necessarily also great bankers, but um, they, they tend to start funding the arts. Now, Italy, by not being a single nation, also finds itself not in giant wars all the time. There are contentions and battles between these different kingdoms in Italy, certainly. Um, And some of these bankers are kind of funding it because they want to be able to to do their banking um, in a a state that is not hostile to them. But generally, that's not what we're seeing in Italy. What we're seeing is a, a much more kind of peaceful flowering. Um, in England, however, the England is a single nation, obviously it's a, it's a country, um, and you start to see uh, two major wars, the 100 Years' War, which lasted about 116 years, um, the 116 Years' War is, is just not a good title, so we went with 100 Years' War, and then it's a dispute between France and England, really starting with uh, the reign of Edward II so this is also in the middle of the 14th century so this lasts until um, until the middle of the 15th century at which point the England then instead of fighting France breaks out into a civil war between the Lancasters and the York families over who should control the throne which if you've seen the first season of Game of Thrones is very similar to the first season of Game of Thrones except there's no dragons so it may be more boring Um, what ends up happening out of that is that on the 22nd of August, 1485, you have the Battle of Bosworth Field, a very unlikely victor. Henry Tudor comes into England. He defeats Richard III, um, and Richard III was killed in the battlefield. We've actually found his body, I think, in 2011, 2012. Big hole on the back of the head. Um, and Richard falls. Henry becomes king. Um, and he's crowned Henry the Seventh. This ends like a century and a half of war, um, and it establishes the Tudor line. Furthermore, Henry the Seventh is a super paranoid guy, uh, which makes sense because his his uh, his justification for having the throne is pretty light, and so um, he he's very paranoid. He watches his money carefully, and he actually repairs the financial health of. Of England and in so doing is able to start kind of funding acting and acting troops um, he has a he has two sons King Arthur and uh, excuse me Prince Arthur and Prince Henry Prince Arthur dies and um, an unlikely another unlikely heir Henry becomes Henry the seventh we all know Henry the seventh he had a uh, shit ton of wives um, and in order to marry his second wife and divorce uh, Catherine, he, in 1533, breaks with the Catholic Church, um, marries Anne Boleyn, who becomes the mother of Elizabeth Tudor, Elizabeth I, and he establishes the Church of England. Um, He situates himself as the head of the church. Um, Now, we think of the Church of England as, as kind of a Protestant church. It really isn't. Protestantism was something going on thanks to Martin Luther on the continent, as well as other people. It wasn't just Luther, Um, but we start to see sects of people pushing back against Catholicism. Um, uh, Henry is not a fan of Protestantism. He prefers the Catholic Church, however, they won't let him marry who he wants, so he just starts his own church. But Protestantism proper, the Protestantism we think of, is still illegal in England. However. Certain aspects of it was brought into the Anglican Church. The Bible was translated, and then Henry's heir, Edward the Sixth, is the first king raised as a Protestant. He's actually, you know, even though Protestantism is illegal, he's he's raised in a non-Catholic way. And um, under his reign, the book of uh, the of Common Prayer is composed. So that's a book that is not Catholic. And is part of the workings of the Anglican Church, and so he composes it. And under Elizabeth I, that book becomes situated in each church. So we're starting to see um, a, a real push towards Protestantism. Um, and here's Queen Elizabeth. That's a depiction of her, I think. Um, I just don't remember where I got that picture. <laughs> Sorry, guys. But anyway, Elizabeth I. So Edward rules for six years. Um, his half sister Mary. Mary, who was the the daughter of Henry VIII's first wife, um, she rules for five years or so. She restores Catholic rule, and she burns a number of Protestants, I think like around 200. Um, and so we have this back and forth between now Protestant and Catholic rule in England. She dies. Uh, her sister, who was imprisoned up to this point, Her half-sister, rather. Elizabeth takes the throne and Elizabeth restores Protestant rule, although she she kind of takes her foot off the gas a little bit. Um, However, she does begin immediately to start to crack down on cycle plays, those plays that they're like in 40 parts that guilds do that have religious stories. Um, So she saw kind of these presentations as having a kind of a Catholic flavor. And so she cuts down on that because you don't want a lot of different types of religious demonstration when you're in a country that is kind of, uh, uh, can't make up its mind over what religion it wants and um, it, it, the the decision it makes affects who's in charge. Okay, so major changes to theater. You know, I honestly, I think I just put the wrong picture in the last slide, but we'll live. Um, Another problem Elizabeth has is one of the popular plays performed was Robin Hood. And if you know the plot of Robin Hood, it's all about killing an unjust king. You know, King King John, not a great king. Uh, And this play, not religious, secular, was performed by wandering players. They would go from place to place. um, Inheritors of that Commedia dell'arte tradition we saw after the fall of Rome. They were performing Robin Hood. Elizabeth did not like this, um, concerned that this would foster rebellion. She outlaws strolling players in uh, 1572, demanding that all theaters be licensed. This is uh, vaguely known as the Vagabond Law. You'd be tried as a vagabond if you're going from town to town acting. And what ends up happening here is that now um, theaters have to be local. They have to have a locality that to be in one place and they have to be, um, they have to be a professional troupe that's given licensed by a, a, nobleman. And so initially four noblemen received the right to license theaters as servants of, of that nobleman. Right. And so the consequence of this is theater has to professionalize, um, to deal with these new conditions, uh, now when it's about, so the place you want to go if you're a professional theater is where all the people are right that's where you make money so the th- so they wanted to go to london right the, the most populated place in england is london however the mayor of london the lord mayor of london outlawed theater uh, outdoor theater specifically because of the chances of plague so you couldn't go to the theater because you might spread the plague Um which doesn't sound so crazy anymore, does it? But that's what happened back then. And so these troops, in order to set up theaters in the most populated area, bought up a bunch of land around the borders of London, where the Lord Mayor's jurisdiction ended, and set up theaters there. So people can easily get to the theater from London, although they're not inside London proper. All right. Uh, the first theater to do this was the Red Lion, built in 1567. So this is even before the vagabond law, right? Uh, John Brain, who I believe was a grocer, um, and he built it for 20 pounds, which was uh, got more than a year's salary for a, uh, like a peasant. Um, we know it was; it had at least one play performed in the summer of 1567. We have no evidence to indicate that it was ever used after that one performance, or that that one play, anyway, that one summer. Um, but Brain later, later paired up with his brother-in-law, James Burbage, uh, who, if you know Richard Burbage, Richard Burbage is the first person to play a number of roles, including Hamlet, uh, was the son of James. And so 1576, Burbage and Brain built the theater for the Lord Admiral's Men. The Lord Admiral's Men were um, one of the four theater groups that were licensed, that were allowed by Elizabeth. And uh, Burbage and Brain built the first long long-standing theater known as The Theater, uh, creative titles not being something they were interested in um, at this time. So the theater was enormous. It held 2,500 people in three separate levels. Um, if you wanted to be a groundling, just stand on the ground. I just think it was one penny. If you wanted to be in, like, the boxes, it would be two. If you wanted to stool, really, really good luxury there. You, it was three. And these theaters were exciting. They sold beer. They sold snacks. Um, if actors weren't doing a great job, they, the snacks were thrown at the actors. Um, so it was kind of, it was not, it was not Broadway, right? It was a little more rough and tumble than that. Um, Theatres that followed, Curtain, Rose, Swan, Globe, Fortune, Red Bull. Shakespeare um, worked in the Rose and then later the Globe. Uh, that's that's his transition. The Globe is the one he's most famous for because that's where like the great plays of Shakespeare were staged, the most famous ones. Okay, now we, we talked about outdoor theater being illegal. However, indoor theater was legal in London and the most famous theater there the first theater was 1576 again this big year 1576 that was the blackfriars theater which is built in the south end of of london uh, right on the thames um, blackfriars theater it was formerly a dominican monastery and the dominicans were a monastic order monastic just means monk there were four major monastic orders during the middle ages however in the 1530s henry the when dissolving Catholic rule also took this as an opportunity to, to take all of the money and material resources from the monasteries because they were Catholic. So he basically said, hey, Dominicans, you're no longer in order. I get all your money and your building. Bye. And that's what he did. Um, so now you had this this building that was being uh, rented out. Um, and Richard, Richard Farrant who was a composer leased the theater, and he had a number of um children's groups that he was training that was training to to sing and whatnot and would sing his compositions and He started staging plays with with children and this became wildly popular um having children's plays was incredibly popular. Ben Johnson, who we'll talk about later, we're not gonna read his plays they they're, they're they're more difficult Um, but Ben Johnson loved doing children's theater like he would have his plays being staged by children and um, seating was limited to 750 people much smaller so therefore the ticket prices because there were you know supply equals demand um, ticket prices spiked and therefore the more upper class people went to the indoor theater and so the the plays that were produced here tended to be thought of as uh, higher quality or at least um, geared towards an upper class audience okay and here's just some pictures of the theater uh, this is the, the the theater as I mentioned before called the theater and this is kind of the floor plan that was recovered. Here's a picture of uh, the curtain drawn right around the year 1600 and you can see the curtain is like right over there. Um, here is a model of the Rose, what we thought it looked like inside. And you can see there's actually people sitting over the stage, which you think would be a bad view, but was actually very expensive because it was kind of you got to be seen at the theater. And then this is a picture of this is a copy of a drawing of I believe a dutch a Dutch traveler who came to the Swan and did a drawing of the Swan. This isn't that drawing. It's a copy someone made a, a few years later. Um, but this is, I believe, the only contemporary drawing we have of of kind of the inside of a theater in England. This thing here, the, the theater, this is a uh, a recovery of um, the the floor plan after The theater was dug up, right? Like a lot of these things were knocked down and and modern buildings were paved over. Um, A lot of archaeological effort went into recovering these things and this is a floor plan of that. This is a picture of the outside, but this one here is I think the only contemporary picture of the inside of a theater. So when you see restorations of the globe in England or something like that, a lot of that is guesswork from archaeological digs and taken from really this one picture you're currently looking at. This is what we have. Um, And here's another one. Here's like the globe, also an exterior. Um, And here's the fortune. This is, I think this is kind of a guess based on modern accounts. Okay, I think that is it. Yep. Okay. So I should be back. Yep. Yeah, here we are. All right. Good, good, good. With that in mind, let's woo, let's really jump into the play. We don't have a tremendous amount of time because we're, we're always we always have more scheduled than we can get to, which I think is a good thing because we can, you know, pack you full of information. Um, but anyway, let's start with As You Like It, uh, or and um, I should say, any questions about the the slideshow? Okay. So let's start with As You Like It, and let's just, I want to look at the, right now we only have time really, to look at the first act. And I want to ask, what is actually happening in the first act? What's, What's just the plot? yeah so what we have is Oliver and Orlando are brothers Sir Roland the father of both Oliver and Orlando has died and he's made Oliver responsible for certain things for Orlando including his education um, however Oliver is not so keen on providing Orlando with those resources um, Orlando in a, a spit of anger has decided to challenge the wrestler Charles Um However, Charles, who seems to be somewhat a decent person, goes to Oliver. Now, what does Charles talk to Oliver about? This is Oliver, the older brother. Okay, so they they talk about um, uh, Charles says to Oliver Your brother is is coming to me to fight He's probably not going to do very well Therefore, you know, maybe Take him out of the fight or convince him not to And Oliver says, what? If somebody could say what, we get to go home Or go offline. I guess we're already at home. Exactly. Yeah, he said, um, "You know, I, I have no love for my brother. Therefore, you can do what you want." You know, the the assumption kind of being that Charles might kill, kill Orlando. However, obviously, because the, the play doesn't end in Act 1, um, Orlando does get the best of Charles. Okay, great. So we're going to continue this um, on Wednesday. We'll, we'll keep doing this play. And so this whole week, the rest of the week is going to be kind of devoted to going through this play. And a lot of these questions are going to be some basic stuff, like what is the plot? What's going on? Uh, and, and so just prepare for that. And then we'll talk about the movie as we go. All right. Any other questions? Okay, good. So I guess we are we're done for today. Email me any questions if you have them. Thank you.